real quick before we jump into Luke. I don't know if that idea of justice is tricky for you. Where we live, justice is often associated with breaking the law. So when you think about justice, at least for me and maybe you, you think of the court system. And we don't want, if, if you're receiving justice, it's because you've done something wrong. That's called retributive justice, and that is in the Bible. And God is the one who is the judge. But also in the Bible, an even more dominant current is called distributive justice, which is God giving to people things that they need. Often things that we consider mercy, he considers issues of justice, not mercy and compassion. So feeding people who are hungry, we may see that as something we do that's a merciful or compassionate act. What God says is, no, that's, that's just. They need to eat, and you've got the food to feed them. And so if, that's, if, if the whole idea of justice kind of trips you up, if you don't necessarily see how that plays out in our community except bad people being punished, I'd encourage you, particularly in the Old Testament, spend some time in the Old Testament. Think about this idea of distributive justice, which is God giving to people what they need or what he has promised to them. That's another expression of justice that I think is more um, dominant in the Bible than just punishing uh, people who have done wrong. So that may be something for you to think about or as you're reading the Bible to keep in mind. Okay, Luke 8. We're going to start in verse 18. Let me review where we've been. Last week we had that curveball. We were going to have the service up the street and we didn't and it threw us off a little bit. So a couple of weeks ago we looked at verses 1 through 17 and the lens, the grid was what does it look like to live life like a missionary? I said everybody is sent. That's what it means to be a missionary. We were all sent to a particular place with a message to do particular work. If we're going to grow as missionaries, we need to learn to trust God. Remember, Jesus sent the 12 out and he said, don't take anything. You've got to trust me to meet your needs as well as trust me to meet you in ministry. We recognize that as missionaries, at some point you'll probably create a bit of a fuss, a bit of a stir. The 12 on this short-term mission trip did enough work that Herod, the king, heard about what was going on. And we also said we've got to assume that God wants to use us. We need to acknowledge, recognize, assume, whatever word you want to use, that God wants to use us. That's the feeding of the 5,000 where God, where Jesus chose to feed this huge crowd through the disciples instead of just doing it on his own. Then last week we took a detour and we looked at Esther. We did the whole book in one day. And you're probably thinking, why don't you do more of that whole book in one day? We've been on Luke since January. So, but with Esther... We looked at the whole book in one day, and the theme for us was this idea for such a time as this. Who knows, but that God has put you in a position that you're in for such a time as this. You may not like your circumstances, and you can pray for those things to change. But until they change, to think like a missionary is to assume God has you in that role. He has you in that job. He has you in that house. He has you in that relationship for a reason and begin to ask him and say, why? Why am I here? What, what, what's going on? How do you want to use me in this circumstance? So that's just a missionary mindset to assume you are where you are because God has, we, the word we were using was providence. God has providentially placed you in that spot for now. Doesn't mean that you can't pray for it to change, but until it does, take advantage of the circumstances. Today we're going to look at uh, verses 18 to 27. A lot of significant things here, and we're just going to kind of uh, skim over the surface and then trust that the Lord can work some of this into your heart over the course of the week. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah and others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Most important question in history. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny him themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So most important question any of us will ever answer. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is? A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. That's another way of saying, well, who, who am I? To you. So setting Jesus is praying with his he's praying, it says he's praying privately with his disciples are with him. So uh, he comes out of prayer and he asks them, what are people saying about me? What's the what's the report? What are the headlines? And they give him this response. It's the exact same from chapter nine, verses seven and eight. When Herod says, who is Jesus? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, Herod has beheaded John the Baptist. I'm not I don't see how this Report is going out. Jesus and John the Baptist are pretty close to the same age. So I don't get how people are saying somehow Jesus is John the Baptist um, reincarnated. Maybe they mean that the spirit of John the Baptist is on Jesus or something like that. But that's a report. Some say you're like Elijah. You'll see some scripture in the background. There's a prophecy in Malachi. God would send someone who would turn the hearts of people back Towards their families, he would let, he would make a straight path for the Lord, and so people saw parallels between Jesus and this miraculous ministry of his, and Elijah and the miraculous ministry he had. Some said you're going to be he's one of the prophets, maybe a different one. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 told the Israelites, he said, God's going to send someone else like me, a prophet. And your Bible probably has prophet capitalized in that verse. Specific person. You need to listen to him. Jesus had this great teaching and preaching ministry. And like Moses, he also worked miracles. And they they were saying maybe this is the guy that Moses was talking about as well. That's what Herod thought. And Peter says that's what that's 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 the report. That's what we're hearing about you. And then Jesus personalizes it. He goes from this kind of generic information to very personal information. What about you? Who do you say that? I was looking for a relational Response And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one sent by God to make everything right. And he's, he's correct. Jesus doesn't say that in Luke, but that's the right answer. I'm going to pull back for a little bit and look at a couple of things. One, chapter 8, verse 25, Jesus and the disciples are on a boat. You remember that? We looked at that about a month ago. They're on a boat. There's a huge storm. Jesus is asleep. I said, I think it's a test of their faith. He wants to see, will y'all trust me? To keep you safe, even when it appears that I'm not paying attention. They, they fail. They wake him up. And he does calm the storm. And after that, their response is, who is this? That's what they want to know. Probably two years into his ministry, two out of three years. So they're two-thirds of the way through. That's my guess. I don't know that for certain. But about two-thirds of the way through his ministry, they're still going, who is this? They don't know. And then fast forward maybe three months, maybe two months, three months later, this very clear 
revelatory response. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. So what happened between 825 and 920? Again, I think it's probably just a couple of months. What happened in that span to really help crystallize this answer in Peter's heart? And Peter is speaking for the rest of the disciples. If you go back and read the chapter in between 825 and 920, you'll see Jesus uh, delivers a demoniac, but he's done that before. Jesus raises someone from the dead, but he's done that before. He heals this lady who's been bleeding for 12 years. He's healed other people before. One of the things, I think there's two, this is me speculating, you can disagree. Two things that I see that are different. One, Jesus sends them out on this Mission trip. That's what we said. It's a first ever short term mission trip. That's different. That's something that the disciples have not experienced before. And I think during that three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, period, where they're out and about, where Jesus says, don't take anything and your, your needs are going to be met. And day after day, they realize, wow, it's happening. We're hanging out in these squares and people are pulling us into their house and they're feeding us. And he says, and you're going to proclaim the good news and people are going to respond. And they are. And you're going to pray for people who are sick and they're going to get better. And that's happening. And you're going to pray for people who are demonized and they're going to be set free. All of those things are happening. And I think it's doing something to the disciples understanding of who Jesus is. Small groups 101, fallback icebreaker. If you could have any superpower, what would you have? Some people want to fly. Some people want to be invisible. Some people want to read minds. Not me. I don't want to know what any of you are thinking. So that's superpower. I have that. So let's say I can fly. That makes me awesome. If I can touch less and make him fly, whole different ballgame. It's one thing for me to have power. It's another thing for me to be able to give that power to someone else, and that's what Jesus did. He gave them the power and authority that he had. They were doing the same things that he was. If you read through the Old Testament, miracles are concentrated in the lives of a few people. Moses, Elijah, and Elijah come to mind. There are a few others, but miracles tend to be concentrated in those guys. And so when people see Jesus performing miracles and they hear what he's saying, their immediate thought is, well, he's like Moses, or he's like Elijah, or he's like Elijah. That's what we just saw. But then when he's able to transfer, for lack of a better word, that power and that authority to these 12 guys, and they're out in his name doing this work, that's a whole different level of person for them. Like that, that I think, crystallizes. Well, he's more than a prophet. He's more than just a great teacher. He's even more than a miracle worker because we didn't, for two years, we've seen him doing these things. And then he did that stuff through us. Like There's not an Old Testament parallel for that. He's in a category all by himself. And I think that helped them begin to say there's something different about him. He's not just the greatest thing we've ever seen. He's in a category all by himself. He's not just the greatest prophet or the greatest teacher or the greatest miracle worker. He's something else entirely. And that other category, which at that point was an empty box, was Messiah. There hadn't been one of those before. And I think Peter and the disciples are going, that might be the box that he's in. And the context is Jesus is praying. We don't know what he prays. It doesn't say. But I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke says Jesus is praying when all of this comes up. I think he's asking the Father to clarify in the hearts and the minds of his disciples who he is. This is the final push towards Jerusalem and the cross. When we get to verse 51, you'll see it says Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And that's where he starts Moving. It's the final countdown for him. The last six, nine, twelve months of his ministry and his life. 
And he needs them to know this is what's going to happen. This is what's in front of you. And so I think he's praying and he's asking the Lord to provide clarity. And I think that's why he asked the question. So coming out of this prayer time where he's prayed, he says, what are people saying about me? All right, that's the public report. What about you? What do you say about me? And Peter answers correctly. And Jesus' response to me is interesting. He says, don't tell anybody. You got it right, but don't say anything to anybody about it. Strictly warns them. Why? Because who Jesus was as the Messiah, right answer, not the way that they're thinking about, would not be helpful for them to go around and spread this news at this point. It would not help Jesus' cause for them to go around and tell everybody, hey, we know who the Messiah is. It's Jesus. Everybody's looking for a political or a military figure, someone to overthrow the Roman government. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus suffered and he died. That doesn't fit in the box for Messiah. And so he says, don't say anything. And then he defines himself. This is what it means for me to be the Messiah. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be raised to life. If you read through, as we will, the rest of Luke, the disciples never get this. At least three times Jesus says very explicitly, this is who I am. This is the kind of Messiah that I am. I'm the suffering kind, and I'm the dying kind, and I'm going to be raised to life. They don't get it. It's like when he starts speaking that truth, he switches to a different language, and they just don't, they never get it. They don't get it until Easter Sunday when he appears to them on the other side of the grave. Up until that point, for whatever reason, things that to us are as clear as day, they just don't get That's how strong their preconceived ideas are about who Jesus is, that they can't, this new information that he's giving, even though he's speaking very plainly and clearly to them, they never assimilate it into their understanding of who he is. And something similar could be said about us. Again, if the most important thing about us is what we think about, we think about God, let's make that even more specific. What we think about when we think about Jesus, none of us sees him perfectly. All of us have flaws in our understanding of who Jesus is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we look through a glass darkly. And that's, that's reality for us. It's not a criticism. It's the state that we're in. We don't see Jesus with our eyes. We don't hear him with our ears. And even if we did, we'd still be confused on some things like the disciples were. We don't have a crystal clear picture. Our understanding is not completely accurate. If part of our jobs as missionaries is to help people answer the question, who do you say that I am? If that's the most important question anyone's going to answer, then part of our job, part of the reason we're sent is to help people answer that. Then we need to know who he is. But again, the default for all of us is we create a caricature. or We, we highlight one aspect of him and we suppress another. Here's some pictures. Some people have political Jesus. He may be a Republican and watch Fox News and be all about limited government and low taxes and personal responsibility. He may watch MSNBC. He may think the government's responsibility is to help people work through their problems, solve their problems, maybe for gun control. But there's this political picture of who Jesus is. Let's see the next one. You may have hippie Jesus. He wants to know why we all can't just get along. We love each other. Everybody's, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all going to be okay. Sunday school Jesus, he's predictable and safe. Maybe a bit of a sissy, but we know what we're getting. We've got hipster Jesus. 
He's ironic and cool. He doesn't like anything that's more than 15 minutes old. CEO Jesus on the right. He's all about results. He's a bit detached. Leadership. Let's go. Let's make these things happen. Bobblehead Jesus. He's like a good luck charm. You can keep him on your dashboard or in your pocket. He's there when you need him. Doesn't interfere in your life. Otherwise, boyfriend Jesus with the windswept hair. He's in love with you and wants to slow dance. That's what we get. We just create him. There's some truth to most of those on some level. And it's not a matter of when I say, what do you think about when you think about Jesus? Something comes into your mind and the, the goal is not necessarily to erase or delete that image. Because there's most likely some truth there. The goal is to add the other pieces. He's all of those things. He is for personal responsibility. And he's for caring for the poor. He's both. Most of the, most of the, the pictures that we put up there, you could pull something that was true out of each of those, even if they're, or maybe even because they're, they're in tension with one another. We want to define him a little more tightly than he's willing to be defined. So part of what we're going to do as we move towards the end of this morning is take some time and ask, what, what's my picture and what needs to be added to it? We won't spend a whole lot of time saying what needs to be taken away, but what needs to be added. Here are a few things I thought of, and there's tons more that Jesus said, the Bible says about Jesus, that he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. But many of us live like he's distant and he's not moved by our prayers or our suffering The Bible says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but sometimes we just treat him like a buddy. And he's just giving us advice or suggestions and we can choose whether or not we want to follow what he says. He's the good shepherd. He rejoices when he finds a lost sheep. He's the good shepherd. We can know his voice. We think maybe he tolerates us at best. He doesn't like us very much. He leaves us on our own to figure things out. He's the lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. Some of us, we live as if we've got to scrub ourselves clean. We have some residual guilt that we have to take care of. We live under condemnation for things that he's forgiven us of. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. Think of a lion. He's defeated sin and death and Satan. But many of us live as if we've got to fight for ourselves. We've got to defend ourselves. We've got to stand up for ourselves. He's the creator and sustainer of all things, according to Colossians. But for many of us, we think we're the ones that hold everything together. If we're to slow down or to stop or to pull back, every, we think the world is going to come falling apart. Everything depends on us and our ability to keep the plates spinning. And then Jesus, after he defines himself, this last section, he defines discipleship. Very important for us. We want to be disciples. And he defines it. Whoever wants to be my disciple, listen to the three things must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. So whoever wants to be my disciple, that is whoever wants to be a student, an apprentice is maybe a better word, whoever wants to apprentice their, themselves to me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. How come? Because whoever wants to save their life on this earth will wind up losing it forever. Whoever loses their life here on this earth for my sake We'll save it forever. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It's not good at all. It's silly. That's a bad trade. 
Whoever is ashamed of me, whoever does not acknowledge me, whoever is not willing to deny themselves and follow me, then the Son of Man, when he comes back in the glory of the Father and the glory of the angels, will not know him either. And then he has this little thing at the end. Some of you are standing here, will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. I think that refers to the transfiguration, which we'll look at next week. That's, a, that's the next story. and I think this is a setup for that. So for us, this idea, I want to be a disciple, I want to be an apprentice, I want to be a follower, I want to be a Christian, all saying the same thing. So what does that look like for me? It means I need to deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow Jesus. There's lots of things that we can unpack under those. And again, we're just going to skim the surface. You may have some other thoughts that are different from mine, which is fine. A few things that I've thought of. Deny yourself. Go to things that get in the way. So that's basic level stuff to me. On some level, it's sinful behaviors, but you already knew that. You've got to say no to things that are sinful. I was thinking more of the gray area. So there's black and white. These things are absolutely good. Philippians says you think about that, those things. You think about things that are pure. You think about things that are noble and holy and praiseworthy. You think about all that stuff. And then there's a whole list of behaviors and thought patterns in the Bible that are Wicked, and they're evil, and they're evil for everybody. There's no, no excuses for these things. We don't gossip, we don't slander, we don't look at pornography, we don't get drunk, we don't do that stuff. It's just wrong. But then there's this whole world of gray, which is uncomfortable for some of us. And what's okay for me is maybe not okay for you, and what's okay for you is maybe not okay for me. Romans 14 talks about this. How do we deal with this gray areas when we're, when we're living as a body and Paul has some instructions. That's not what we're talking about today, how to deal with that with one another. But you can go there and see there's some stuff. There's some stuff in there. At one point, Paul says that everything everything may be good, but not everything's beneficial for you. And so that's part of it for us. Saying what's beneficial for me in terms of following Jesus. And I want to learn how to say no to the things in the gray area. We all say no to the things that are kind of in this black, always evil category. So this gray area, I want to discipline myself to know how to say no to those things. All of these things are tied together. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And I think in this gray area, one of the things that's tricky is I live across the street from Bo, and there may be things that are okay for Bo that are not okay for me. I have this huge window, and I can look out, and I can see what Bo is doing. I can say, hey, that's not right. How come he gets to cut the grass with his shirt off and I got to wear a shirt or whatever it is? And you may say, well, look at him and look at you. And that's all you need to know. I don't know. But there's a gray area. Bo wears a shirt. So those are just in case you're wondering or some of you may want to drop by. Check it out. So there's a gray area and we've got to figure out I've got to discipline myself to say no. One of the reasons we fast during Lent is to build up our spiritual muscles to say no to our appetites. There's nothing wrong with sweets. That's what many of you give up. Or coffee or tea or dessert. There's nothing wrong. Those things aren't sinful. But in saying no to those things, physically saying no to that food, somehow that I don't understand, builds up our spirit. It strengthens our heart, if you like that better, so that we can say no to our appetites. And so I would encourage you, if you find it difficult... In the gray areas to say no, a great discipline is fasting. 
It's not a, it's hard to see. How does saying no to certain food affect what I'm doing in this area of my life? I don't know. I just know that it does. It strengthens your spiritual muscles to be able to deny your flesh. Again, the, the stuff that's completely wicked, we're not talking about that. I'm talking about the gray area, the things that you know are not good for you. 30 minutes of TV is okay, an hour's not okay for you. This type of movie is okay for you. You can't see, maybe you can't see PG-13. You can't. It's just for, there's something in you and it pulls you in a, it doesn't help you follow Jesus. So maybe certain um, uh, scenes, uh, settings, places that you can't go. They're not, they're not sinful, but for you, they don't help. They're not beneficial to you. So strengthening your spiritual muscles to say, no, the bigger picture beyond behavior is, what does it look like for me to say, my life is not for me? I'm denying myself. I'm not saying the chief end of my life is to make me happy or the chief end of my life is to fulfill the desires that I have. That's denying myself and saying my life is for him. The chief end of my life is to make him happy, not to make me happy. And I love it on the places where that where those two goals overlap, where making him happy makes me happy. But there very well may be times where making him happy doesn't make me happy at all. And to deny myself says, all right, you win. Your happiness trumps mine. Your pleasure trumps mine. Your will trumps mine. To fulfill your purposes for me trumps me fulfilling my purposes for me. That's a hard thing to say yes to. Unless you tie back and say, who's the one asking? It's the good shepherd. He's the king. He's the lamb who died for you. If you can begin to say that's who he is, then when he says deny yourself, it's not, it's not harsh. It's not punitive. It's not a test. He's not trying to see if you can make the cut. He's saying, I've got a better life. I've got abundant life for you. I've got this rich and full life for you to live. And we've got to get rid of some of this stuff that's getting in the way. I've got to take up my cross daily. I think that speaks to the, the duration or the extent of denying myself all the way to the point of death. We don't live there. It's not the circumstances for us. I think it's about 170,000 Christians every year are martyred because of their faith. It's not, it's not us. I think it's about 200 million Christians who actively live under persecution or live under active persecution. It's a better way of saying that. It's not us. That's not where we live. So this idea of taking up our cross daily, the cross being an implement of death, doesn't necessarily resonate with the culture that we live in. The way I think about that, to try to make it more real for me, just because I'm not in those settings, is to say, for me to take up my cross daily, is to recognize I'm not in control of my life. He is. It's to give up control for me. I'm not driving. He is. That ties into this whole idea of my life is, it's, it's about making him happy, not making me happy. Pleasing him, not pleasing me. I'm giving up control because I want to follow him. And if I'm leading, then by definition, I'm not following. If I'm going to follow, that implies obedience and submission. It means somebody else is out in front. And there's a continuous nature to following Jesus. We've talked about this before. He walked 3,000 miles in three years. So when he says to the disciples, follow me, there's a very physical, very literal response of walking after him. And they had to re-up every day because Jesus was constantly on the move. If they said, we're not going today, 
He might walk 30 miles in a day. And how are they going to find him? They've got to daily say, we're doing this. We're re-upping every day. Wherever you say go, we're going to go. There are times where they say, why don't you stay? You are hitting it huge in this place. Everybody loves you. Let's stay. We can bring more people. And he says, no, we've got to keep moving. I've got to get to the next town. All right, we move to the next town. We're going to go across the sea to this graveyard where there are a bunch of pigs. And there's one guy, and we're going for him. All right, let's get in the boat and let's go. I don't know that he gave them an itinerary every day. I tend to think probably not. I think the itinerary was follow me. I know where I'm going. Y'all's responsibility is just to stick close. Silly illustration. If he walks 3,000 miles over the course of three years, let's say for every mile, it's a straight line. But let's say for every mile he walks forward, Thaddeus, because we never talk about him. He's one of the disciples. He moves off by foot. And then another mile and another foot. Still walking forward, just he's drifting. Just a foot per 5,280 feet. That seems like well within the margin of error. But if you look over the course of 3,000 miles, that one foot becomes 1,000 yards. Ten football fields. You're a long way. Thaddeus is a long way away by the time Jesus gets to the cross. And the same thing is true for us. There's this daily re-upping. What does it look like? For me to follow you. I don't want you to hear that as heavy or guilt inducing. But as invitation. Like excited Jesus is saying. Follow me. We got some stuff to do today. And it's going to be awesome. And I want you to be with me. Again we talked before. This whole idea of take your child to work day. That's what we get to participate in. And recognize when he says. I want you to deny yourself and take up your crosses. Because we've got to get rid of these things. That are going to hold you back. And that are going to keep you. From following after me. Because it's going to be great if you do. One of the temptations we face following after Jesus is very personal. It ties back into that denying yourself. Bo doesn't have to wear a shirt and I do. This is John 21. Jesus has just restored Peter. So Peter denies Jesus three times. And then Jesus restores him. And I think Peter is kind of wondering like, where am I on the, in the pecking order? I knew I was the spokesperson. We saw that in Luke 9. I was here, and then I denied you, and so I don't even know if I was in the club anymore. And now you've restored me, but I don't know, like, am I one, am I twelve, where am I on the list? Very truly, I, Jesus, tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. That's us. That's what we want. I want to be in control. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. That's not what we want. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And, his, and Jesus says to him, follow me. This is what your future looks like. Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. That's John. This was the one whom had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about John? If I want John to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Again, I think Peter's wondering, like, where am I being punished? Where do I fit? What about him? Is the same thing going to happen to him that happens to me? And what Jesus says is, I'm not answering that question. John's following doesn't impact your following. You follow me. Whether John gets the same treatment, worse treatment, or better treatment is irrelevant. 
Your responsibility is to decide that you're going to follow me. I've told you how this thing's going to play out. And you have to trust me. It's not about where you are in the pecking order, whether I'm punishing you or not, or what happens to John, who thinks he's the favorite. None of that matters. What matters is, how are you going to respond, Peter? Where we live, it's very, very easy to look to the left and the right. Well, they're following Jesus, and look how their life is breaking. Why isn't mine breaking the same way? There's a whole section of books in the Christian bookstore that says, if this, then this. If you do this, then these are the results. Don't read any of them because they're all wrong. They're wrong. They haven't read this passage. There are, there's not guarantees like that. If you do this, then God is somehow obligated to respond this way. Because God worked in person A's life, who's now successful and famous, that means if you do the same thing person A does, you can expect the same results. God is not a technique-based God. He's relational. And the things he's doing in my heart may be completely different from the things he's doing in yours. The places where the valleys in my heart that need to be filled in because I'm wounded... And the mountains in my heart that need to be leveled because of the places in my personality that are still prickly or immature. It's different than it is for you. The crooked places in my heart that he's trying to make straight aren't, aren't necessarily crooked in yours. And the things that he's calling me to are different than the things that he's calling you to. And so for me to look at Brandon and say, well, how come my following doesn't lead to the same place his does? I'm completely missing the point. At that point, I'm either trying to follow him or I'm just griping and saying it's not fair, which is most likely what's happening. And I'm saying to Jesus, well, if you're going to treat me this way, then maybe I'm out. That's not what you mean, but that's what we're saying when we look to the left and the right. Super easy where we live to do that. We're surrounded by lots of Christians in our area, and it can be easy to compare your life to theirs and say, how come mine isn't breaking the way theirs is breaking? How come they had something happen early in their life that I wanted and I'm still waiting? Or how come they get a promotion and I don't or a bigger house? Whatever those things are. When does my following pay off that way? It may not. And what Jesus is going to say to you is, follow me. That's it. And you get to decide whether or not you want to do that. Let's pray. We've got some time, and so I'm going to pray slow. And I want you to just track with me, and then we'll close with ministry. So this is just for you in your heart before the Lord, and then there will be a chance for you to come and let other people pray for you about these things. The two things I was thinking, again, we covered a ton of ground that was really important. And we just we kind of skimmed the surface on a lot of it. And so, uh, Father, I pray for your spirit now to come and to speak to each one of us. There's not, they're not cookie-cutter answers. There's not this response that is appropriate for everyone. So I want to start, God, with this idea of what do we think about when we think about Jesus and men and women, I want you when I say that, just what comes to your head? What pops into your mind when I say Jesus? Maybe a picture, maybe a scripture, maybe a word, maybe a person. 
I don't want you to try to delete that image because there's most likely some truth there. But I'm going to pray, and if you're open, just open your heart and you can agree with me in prayer, is that God would just add another element of the picture over the course of the next week or so. Just like with the disciples, most knowledge for us, what God's looking for is personal or relational or experiential knowledge. All of those mean the same thing. Usually that requires a step of faith or of trust from us. The disciples had to go out and then see that Jesus would take care of them. And then they knew, hey, he, he's a provider. He's an empowerer because he did that through me. So whatever this new dimension, it may be something, most likely it's something that you already know in your head. You just haven't lived it out yet. So I encourage you to look over the next week or so for an opportunity that the Lord will present to you to trust him in a new way. That will reveal in your heart, experientially, personally, relationally, a new dimension of Jesus' character. So God, I pray that for each of us. None of us has a complete picture. You want to conform us into the image of Jesus, so we need to see the reality of who he is. You want us to help other people answer the question, who do you say that I am? And so we want to know what reality is. We want to know who he really is. And there's truth in all of us, and I thank you for that. The truth that you've given to all of us and that we've incorporated into our hearts, but there's more. None of the pictures for any of us are complete. And so my prayer is you'd show us what's next. What's the next dimension of your character that you want to reveal to us, Jesus? We know you as a lamb. Do you want to show us that you're a lion? We know you as a shepherd. Do you want to reveal yourself as a king? God, I pray for each of us that we would be not just passively open, but intentionally pursuing a deeper understanding of your character, recognizing that most likely that's going to require a new step of trust from us. If we want to see you as our healer, then you're probably going to say, all right, let's pray for somebody to be healed. want to see you as our provider, then you may say, okay, let's start giving a little more. See how you do. Can you trust me? I don't know what the dimensions are, but I pray you would speak to each of us now about what that is. And again, we want to intentionally pursue greater understanding of who you are. And then God, as we think about this idea, you defining a disciple, a follower, Denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following you. Would you, in each of our hearts, just pick one of those three that you want us to focus on? Where are you pressing us to grow? There's some things in the gray area that you're asking us to say no to. Not necessarily because they're sinful, but just because they're not beneficial. 
because they're not helping to make us more like you. They're not helping us be better husbands or wives or better employers or employees or moms or dads or whatever. You're saying, let's cut that. You're asking us to give up control in a certain aspect of our life that we've held on to. You're telling us to stick closer. We wander and meander and you're saying, hey, stick with me. I don't know. Would you speak to us about that? God, my prayer is that the voice people are hearing in their heart and their mind is not harsh because that's not you. I pray that what they would hear is this invitation. I've got some great things for you. Some great things I want to do with you. Let's get rid of this stuff that's dragging you down and holding you back so that you can run this race that I've laid out for you. You don't need to look at the person in the next lane. They've got their own race. Just keep your eyes fixed on me. Just trust me. In Jesus' name, amen.